never forget the moments surrounding the birth of my first child. I will never uh, forget those moments as the midwife led my wife away and I was uh, handed this little baby and I was told, take him and get him dressed. And uh, as the door uh, shut behind them, and I was stu- stood holding this uh, tiny but surprisingly very noisy little uh, bundle of joy. I remember actually at that moment, I remember my thought process. I looked down at this little baby boy and I wondered what lay ahead for him in his life. You know, really quite a sort of poignant moment. I was there holding this little boy wondering, what is he going to grow up to be? Is he going to grow up to be healthy? Is he going to grow up to enjoy school? What job is he going to do when he grows up? Most importantly, will he grow up to know the Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior? You see it? It's a special moment as I held him, looked down, and I wondered this two words, I wondered what lay ahead for this little boy. Friends, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we considered the birth of another little baby boy, didn't we? We considered the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today, in our short time together, what we're going to do is consider the subsequent flight of the Lord Jesus to Egypt. And I would suggest this. I would suggest that in these verses, what we're going to see are hints. In fact, more than that, what we're going to see in these verses are pointers to what was coming. Pointers to what lay ahead for this child who was born in Bethlehem and born as Almighty God amongst men. What lay ahead for the Christ? So I would ask you to please turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13 and to have that open there in front of you and to consider firstly with me the opposition we see here towards Jesus. The opposition towards Jesus. Now, even a cursory glance uh, through the Gospels, it would reveal uh, that Jesus' life was going to be one of difficulty. Isn't that right? Even a cursory glance reveals that Jesus' life, the life of this child born here, was going to be characterized by desertion, betrayal, uh, hatred, opposition, we could go on. Now, what I find quite shocking is what we learn in these verses about just how early that opposition to Jesus begins, began. Because you're with me when I say that Jesus is just a, a little nipper. Here, isn't he? I mean, he's just a few days old. He's just a tiny little baby. And yet, what are we seeing here? We are seeing that the king of the time, King Herod, so, what we see, threatened is he by this little baby who clearly deserves worship. What does he plan to do? He plans, think about this, he plans to put this little baby to death. You see the point? The opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ, it begins, and it begins almost in day one, straight away, this opposition to our Lord. Now, we'll deal with the escape to Egypt in a moment. Here, really, I would ask you to ponder the sheer 
extent of this hostility towards Jesus, the sheer level of hatred on display here, because what do we see in verse 16? You look at it with new eyes this Christmas morning. Do you see what we learn? So filled is Herod with fury, so desperate is he to eradicate Jesus. What do we see in verse 16? Isn't it awful? He plans to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. It's absolutely vile. Let me say this to you. We know how Satan works. We know that one of Satan's great ploys and tactics is to try and cast doubt on God's word. In fact, even the boys and girls here know that, don't they? Uh, Boys and girls, if you think back to the Garden of Eden, you remember the Garden of Eden story? You don't have to shout it out, but see if you can remember what it was that the serpent, what Satan asked Eve in the garden. Do you remember okay. I'll tell you, even if you don't remember, I'll let you off the hook, Chuck. Satan said to Eve, asked Eve, did God really say? What was the serpent doing? Trying to cast doubt on God's word. And we see that in the church as well, in the life of the church in this country. Do we not see the same thing? That even within the church, through uh, liberal scholars, scholarship, through liberal ministers, uh, we see this attempt to cast doubt on the veracity, the truth of Scripture, of the Bible. Now, what I want you to see is that the verses you have before you just now are one of Satan's favoured stomping grounds. Now, do you see what I mean by that? That liberal scholarship, that critical ministers and so forth, they will say that this event, Herod, killing these little boys in Bethlehem, they will say to you, this didn't happen. In fact, they will say to you, this could not have happened. That if it had happened, that we would have a plethora of other evidence in Jewish contemporary sources. And we do not have that, so they say, this didn't happen. I think it's important that we answer that because you, you see that the authority of God's word is at stake in this. So, listen. One, this atrocity here is perhaps on a much smaller scale than we might at first realize. Because I don't know how big you think Bethlehem in the first century was. I think it was the size of Edinburgh or Birmingham or even a market town in England like Cambridge or something like that. Bethlehem wasn't like that. Bethlehem is tiny. You know, Bethlehem is a few houses, an inn, you know, maybe, a stable, maybe. You know, a small, tiny little place. And so even if we take into account the vicinity, the neighboring area, you see the point? Herod didn't kill a huge amount of little boys. He killed only, I say only, but he killed only a few handful, ten maybe, little boys. It's a smaller scale. Then you consider this with me as well. That this atrocity is but one in a huge, long line of atrocities committed by this king. And you see why that's important, do you? 
Yes, if this was the only barbarous act that this king performed, you would expect the Jewish historians to record it. <laughs> but when you, when you consider that this king killed his own boys, this king killed his own wife, this king killed his own mother-in-law, This king went off on a day and killed 300 of his own courtiers. When you consider those sorts of things, maybe you see why it was that the historians didn't go to great lengths to record what we've got here. You see? But even if they didn't, God's word did record this event. And you see why, don't you? It's because it is so utterly shocking and especially the way that it's relayed to us have a look at this verse 17 is relayed as the fulfillment of prophecy doesn't that make it so much more vivid to us more sad that just as jeremiah portrayed rachel as a sort of mother of Israel, if you like, you know, ushering the children into exile in the Old Testament. That really pointed forward to this and to the tears. You imagine the tears of the bereaved mothers of Bethlehem. Can you imagine it? Having their little boys, their little babies taken away from them, a way to be killed. And why? All, all out of a hatred for Jesus. And what, 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 do we, what do we do with that? I mean, how do we bring that atrocity home to us at LCPC this morning? Well, I think if we know anything, if you know anything, if you're a Christian, if you know anything about the Christian life, you know that we are promised in the Bible that it will be a life of difficulty and suffering. Isn't that right? We know anything, that's the case. You know, we know that Scripture doesn't promise us health and wealth, does it? Scripture promises us that it will be a life of difficulty, of suffering, of persecution. Now, aren't we shown in these verses the very nature of the opposition that we will face? Because you take a step back and ask yourself, what happens in this chapter? And I think with me through this. The ruler of the land, the authority in the land, he seeks to, at any cost, eradicate any trace of Jesus. And I ask you, does that not sound most familiar to us in Britain in 2016? Isn't that what we have seen in our country over the past 12 months? Isn't it? The rulers, the authorities of this land doing what? Seeking at any cost to try and eradicate any trace of our Lord. Isn't it? Isn't there been a conscientious effort to sideline the Christian faith? Hasn't there? To rub out from the public square any trace of our Christian heritage. And to erase from our education system from first to last any mention of the good news of the gospel and even to ban from our national health service this attempt to ban in a way people from even mentioning the name of jesus and pray do you see it doesn't it sound familiar this similar fury towards christ this similar desire to eradicate him from the land and so because of that don't you join me in cherishing the main message 
of this portion of scripture. Because you see what it is. The gospel is never hindered by the opposition of the state. Never hindered by the opposition of the state. Isn't that what you see here? What happens? Almighty God comes in and he quashes Herod's plan to kill Jesus. You see that, don't you? The Father in heaven acts and he protects his son. By the end of the section, what have you got? You've got the Lord Jesus Christ and he is safe and he is sound. He's ready to embark on his gospel work. And where's Herod by the end of this? Herod is dead and and rotting in the grave. And I say to you this Christmas morning, that is something that should encourage us as we go into 2017. Because no matter what changes this year, no matter how much a prince or a king or a council or a government might try and obstruct the Christian faith, I can promise you, as I stand in front of you, I can promise you one thing. In 2017... Our God will further his glory. You see it? In this country even, in this country, over the next 12 months, it shall be God's kingdom, his kingdom that advances. I mean, what have we sung in 2017? What have we just sung? That no matter what the opposition is from the rulers of this age to one in heaven, <laughs> he And yes, we should expect difficulty. Yes, we expect suffering this year. Yes, we expect persecution. But remember Matthew 2. Our God is in control. So we see opposition to Jesus. A second thing that we see here are the objectives in Egypt. The objectives in Egypt. So we see something of The hostility that lay ahead for Jesus in this episode. Isn't that right? We almost get a picture of what would lie ahead in the years to come for our Lord, the opposition. But what did that hostility mean for Jesus right now, for him and his family in Matthew chapter 2? Well, if you were here last Sunday morning, you'll remember that we uh, spoke about Regent Street uh, together, didn't we? And the uh, Christmas lights, the bright, shiny Christmas lights in Regent Street, as we remembered an angel appearing uh, to the shepherds in Luke's gospel. Well, you see a similar phenomenon here, uh, do you not? In verse 13, is an angel of the Lord appears to this man, Joseph. And the angel comes with an instruction, and you see what it is? Uh, and No sooner does Joseph receive the instruction than he whisks Mary off, whisks Jesus off, and they leave Israel. They move down south right into the land of the Egyptians, right down there into Egypt. Now, if you're on the ball this morning, if you've had your coffee, and if your children didn't wake you up too early on this Christmas morning, then you may have noticed, you may have noticed just how keen Matthew is to root all of this in Old Testament prophecy. Did you notice that when Adrian uh, read this portion of scripture? Did you notice that nearly every detail was rooted in prophecy? You know, Matthew would say, and this happened, and that fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy, and then this happened, and that was spoken of before. You see? Everything rooted in Old Testament scripture. 
Well, if you and I are going to understand this flight to Egypt, and I would, I would reckon that it's quite a mysterious, almost an enigmatic moment, isn't it? Jesus, Mary, Joseph going to Egypt? And back out again? It is mysterious, isn't it? If we're going to understand it, we really need to get to grips with this specific prophecy that Matthew ties to the event. So this is what I would ask you to do as a congregation. Would you look with me at verse 15? Look at the end of verse 15 and note the prophecy. I'll give you a moment to find it. The end of verse 15. Matthew says that this Egypt event, it fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now, what are the words? Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, that is a prophecy, as you probably know, is a, a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Hosea. And it is a prophecy that works very much like a statue that I once saw. And I think the statue was the statue of a pagan god called uh, Janus. And you've got a picture of the statue with me, okay? And the statue was basically a human form from feet up to the neck. And then at the top of the neck, there was not one, but two heads, okay? One head looking that way, the other head looking this way. You picture it? The boys and girls picture it? It's a strange picture, isn't it, really? Two heads, one looking that way, one... That's how this prophecy works here. Because think about how that prophecy would have sounded to Hosea's first hearers. What is the prophecy? Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you were an Old Testament woman of God or an Old Testament man of God, what are you thinking about if God says that to you? If he says, comes to you and says, out of Egypt I called my son, what are you thinking about? What event are you thinking about? You're thinking about the Exodus. Out of Egypt, aren't you? You're thinking about the Exodus. You're thinking about the very fact that God must be speaking of Israel as his son, the one that he has brought up through by Moses out of slavery. You're thinking about the Exodus event. But what do we learn here? We learn that the prophecy is another head, don't we? The prophecy is looking in another direction. The prophecy is actually really only fulfilled here in Jesus' escape to and return from Egypt. So here's my question for you, friends. Do you see the glory of what Matthew is doing? Do you see it? By tying this event with Jesus to an Old Testament prophecy, he's showing the Jews just who this baby was. And do you see what he's saying? He's saying, here is a new and greater Moses. Here in this child is the one who would grow up and deliver his people from slavery. You see, here is the one who would journey into the Egypt of his people's sin. You see, journey into enemy territory. And why? All to bring them up, all to bring them out of, all to bring them home to the promised land of their salvation. That's what Matthew's saying here. He's saying, look, it's the new, it is the greater Moses. By tying this event to that one Old Testament prophecy, what do you see? 
What do you see? You see not just the opposition, but you see the gospel work that lay ahead for the Christ. And I don't know what you've got planned for your afternoon. And I don't know what you've got planned for tonight or for the next day or your Christmas holidays. I know this though. I know that you're doing nothing better than meditating upon the truth of what that Egypt escape points to. You're doing nothing better than meditating upon the truth of what we see there because consider what the truth of Christmas is that the Christ was born not just to become like you. That the Christ was born to become like you in order to redeem you from your sin. Isn't that what we're seeing here? That we were, that you were enslaved. That we, friends, absolutely, truly were held in such bondage in enemy territory that we were dead. And we were lifeless, we were powerless, we were helpless, we were utterly condemned. What's happened? What has been done for us? A redeemer has come. And he has come at Christmas time. Isn't it, isn't it something? Isn't it staggering that even at Christmas, what happens but the shadow of Calvary, it falls. That even at Christmas, we can rejoice, not just this morning, in God incarnate. But we rejoice that born in Bethlehem to Joseph and Mary was whom? Who is here? What did Matthew say to us? Who is here? A divine deliverer from sin was here. We see the objectives in Egypt. So we see uh, opposition, we see objectives. The last thing this morning, friends, that we must notice is the obedience of Joseph. Um, I was reading this past week an interview, despite myself, I was reading an interview uh, with the Canadian singer Cheryl Crow. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of Cheryl Crow, even if, like me, you're not a great fan of her music, you have at least heard of Cheryl Crow. Well, Cheryl Crow is known for a lot of things. One of the things that Cheryl Crow is known for is being a bit of a serial dater of uh, celebrities. She's been seen on the arm of uh, Lance Armstrong, uh, Eric Clapton, Owen Wilson, and the list, I think, goes on and on and on. Well, in the interview, uh, Cheryl Crow was saying that she's given all of this up. You know, she's not going to be dating famous guys anymore. Knock that on the head. Why? Because she feels uh, that they overshadow her. Uh, She doesn't like it. If she's out with Eric Clapton, quite rightly, all of the attention is on Eric Clapton. And so she feels small and overshadowed. She's going to knock this on the head. Isn't that... How it seems for this man, Joseph, sometimes at Christmas. Like, don't we sometimes almost feel a sense of pity at the way that this man is overshadowed by his better half, by Mary, right? Now, I think that is actually the fault of the, those who have written carols and those who paint the Christmas pictures and so forth. Because in reality, 
I mean, Joseph does play such a crucial role, doesn't he, in the Christmas story? And isn't it true that in the verses that we've read just now, it is Joseph. It's Joseph who is center stage. And isn't it true that the portrait that we have in front of us is of such a godly, godly, godly man? Don't you see that with with Joseph? This is a man who is absolutely fixed on obeying the word of Almighty God. Now, I, I ask you this. Do you see what I mean or not? Do you? If not, consider his exact obedience. Look with me at verse 13, just for a moment. Look at verse 13. Now, in verse 13, the angel gives Joseph an instruction. Now, the thing that I want you to see is that the instruction is in four parts. Do you see it? He says to Joseph, get up, one, two, take the child, three, and his mother, four, and escape to Egypt. So you get it? An instruction in four parts. Okay, now look at verse 14. So look how Joseph responds to this. What does he do? One, you've guessed it already. One, he gets up. Two, he takes the child. Three, and his mother. Four, he escapes to Egypt. Look, do you see the point? This is word for word. You see what's happening? The author here is underlining for you that this was precise, that this was exact obedience to this divine instruction. Joseph obeys exactly the word of God. Then, consider that it was sacrificial obedience. Because we know in in this church, don't we, you know in your life how how difficult it can be for a first-time mum and how difficult it can be for a first-time mum if they are separated from family and friends and their support group. Don't we know that even in the life of this church? Haven't we seen that? It can be a very difficult thing for a first-time mother, right? Will you consider what Almighty God is asking Joseph to do here? He's not just asking him to take Mary, this first-time mum, away from family, away from friends, away from the support group. God's asking Joseph to take this first-time mum into a hostile environment. In Egypt, come on! An immoral place, a dangerous place for her to be. A place where she would not even have the support of the religious community. Quite an instruction from Almighty God, isn't it? And what does the man do? What does he do? He obeys it to a T. And if you're not yet impressed by Joseph, consider that it was also patient obedience. Because is it not true of your life just now as a Christian that so much of your devotional life and your prayer life is about seeking guidance from God, isn't it? So much of it, so much of our devotional life, our worship life, we pray and we're asking God for instruction and we're asking him for direction, aren't we? And we're asking him for a clear knowledge of his will. And think about, think about Joseph in Egypt. Imagine him down there, all of that difficulty, all of these problems. And what does he do? Tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't move He doesn't go home. He doesn't do anything until what happens? 
until that man gets a clear and concise instruction and message from the Lord his God. Isn't that an example for us? And I'll end like this. Again, I say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what you've got planned for Christmas. I do know that more than likely you've got more time than you normally have. Isn't that right? We get at Christmas some time off work and we get some uh, time from university perhaps and studies. We also get time away from our usual routines. Well, I think you can use your time this Christmas one of two ways. You can try and have time off from God. You can just let your devotional life slide this Christmas. You can ignore your maker. You can do that. But you can do something else. Friends, this Christmas, you can evaluate your own standing before him. You, even as a Christian, can spiritually examine your own heart before Christ. And I would urge you to do that this Christmas. Actually, to ask yourself this question. Am I living like Joseph? And in light of Bethlehem, in light of what has been done for me by the incarnate God, am I seeking to worship, to praise, to adore, and to obey the Almighty? Because again, I say to you, isn't isn't the Christmas message incredible when you view it through Matthew 2? Because what's happened here? You see what's happened? The Prince of Glory has left the promised land of heaven above. And he has come to earth. He has come to our Egypt. Almighty God, come to the land of his enemies. And why? All to bring you, all to bring me home with him. And home where? To establish us back up there as part of the new Israel of God. In light of such amazing grace, this Christmas day, don't we praise him? Don't we worship him? Don't we seek to obey this God, the God that is by Jesus Christ brought us home and home from Egypt? Let's pray.